Hi everyone, I'm Ankit, co-founder and CEO of IdeaForge. Just a quick note before this episode starts, we recorded this interview last year before the IdeaForge IPO. Do you remember the drone scene in the movie Three Idiots? That drone was built by a relatively unknown company at that time called IdeaForge. If you are at all interested in the equity markets, then you would surely know that today IdeaForge is no longer an unknown company. In fact, it just pulled off the most successful public listing of the last two years. While casual observers might think that IdeaForge is an overnight success, the truth is that there is a 16-year-long journey behind it full of struggle, grit and perseverance. Ankit Mehta and his friends pretty much bootstrapped Idea Forge straight out of college and spent eight long years before they were able to raise their first decent funding round. Listen on to this heartfelt conversation between your host Akshay Dutt and Ankit Mehta about the amazing journey of Idea Forge and the evolution of the drone industry in India. And don't forget to subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app for more such stories of grit and perseverance. So actually what happened was that I was um, I was looking to start up pretty much straight out of college because I did not sit for the campus placements and uh, I also did not apply outside for any further studies or anything like that. So uh, I pretty much intended to start right off the bat and I was speaking to a few people but uh, the Terms at which I was likely to raise capital did not seem right to me at that time. It was very so what were you pitching? What was the idea? What, did so, you have a product uh, in mind? Yeah, yeah. So we, so I had filed a patent on a novel energy storage device, which was essentially storing mechanical energy in a way that uh, you can accumulate it and then release it uh, later. Uh, so you can take energy from any disparate random source but you can accumulate it in a reservoir of energy and then you can release that energy in a more uh, controlled and more you can say smoother fashion uh, to a device that can generate uh, energy based on that so uh, so that was one of the patents that I'd filed and uh, based on that patent we actually wanted to start a business to build these uh, portable chargers that could charge uh, mobile phones uh, around that time mobile phones had just started penetrating the rural parts of the country and there were so many news items where you would see people charging mobile phones uh, from directly from lead acid batteries some people would be uh, charged paying money to get their mobiles charged at various um, retail stores and kirana stores and stuff like that so Essentially, it was those days and we felt that maybe if we gave them a means of sustaining this device, uh, the usage will uh, go up and we built our first uh, hand crank charger at that time, which could simultaneously sustain calls as well. If you got a call, then you could speak on your phone and keep charging the device. So, And then we had built a few innovative products around it as well. But the initial idea was that to work on alternative energy and that's how it started. And uh, we ended up, uh, you know, in a situation where, uh, you know, I did not have uh, any other backup 
at that time to sustain and you know for me it's been very clear from day one that uh, you know you pursue the path of your heart's desire till the time you can survive if you can't survive then you pick a temporary detour and come back and anyways my uh, co-founding team the technical team was still uh, graduating so i really did not have too much of a choice as well so i got an off campus placement and worked for 6 months uh, particularly trying to earn as much as i could uh, help me survive the next six comfortably so i was happy we started writing our business plan and in 2007 we registered the company we got some initial uh, funding as an individual through a program called technopreneur promotion program of the government of india that was the initial seed capital that went into making our first uh, charges then when we got incubated we got some additional funding through our incubation Center. When did you get incubated? We got incubated at IIT Bombay, Sign IIT Bombay. So, so that's how it started. And uh, yeah, so we we started with the chargers project, but uh, we were also doing these sustenance projects and on the side. While that was the main products, we always knew that we are not going to be building a company purely looking at alternative energy. and that's the reason why we came up with the name idea forge because we didn't really want to box ourselves into saying alternative energy or robotics but we were always excited about mobile robotics so most of our body of work was around either energy devices or mobile robotics including the first prototype drone that we had built in 2004 so since then we've been uh, working with this tech so because we were already doing this IIT Bombay uh, Aerospace Department, you know, worked with us to further build on that technology and the efforts that we had built, and we made some data loggers for them, and we ensured that uh, we are able to help automate those kind of operations. And then in 2008, there was this competition where, alongside MIT and uh, MIT US and and many colleges from the rest of the world. we competed in a competition called MAV 2008 which was jointly held by Department of Defense US and the Indian Army so in that competition we held IIT Bombay secure the pole position alongside MIT US so then because of that uh, there was a lot of acknowledgement that there is a company or a team in India that can actually build these kind of technologies from scratch because at that time there were very few sources of uh, getting your autopilots from uh, there was one german company that we were aware of and those guys were uh, again expensive and uh, it was hard for people to integrate uh, if they do not have first principles understanding of what it takes to do this right so we ended up uh, becoming attractive for a lot of drd labs to deliver our tech to them for their programs so we helped uh, initially lot of our autopilots that is the brains of the drone that actually governs uh, how the drone go from a location a to b that you pointed it for on for it to go to uh, we actually uh, did a lot of work with drdo in the initial days so we supplied a lot of our autopilots there in fact in 2009 we Built, uh, we we launched the world's smallest and lightest autopilot of that time. 
would be almost half the weight of uh, the nearest competitor and would be able to control more types of devices than what the other autopilot used to be able to do. So, with our own so approach... This you know, autopilot that you were supplying, uh, was it like a like a CPU in a way? Like the chip power source software? Yeah, so it's... Uh, you can... Yeah, so it's a computing device that has all the sensors on board that uh, is that are required for the drone to understand its state and understand where it is in reference to the world and then take decisions according to its health and its state and uh, continuously keep it flying and operating at a minimum, you can say, a benchmark. Okay, okay. So it would have like a gyroscope, a GPS. Yes. And the DRDU was looking to deploy this for like, if you are conflict in the desert or if there's extra eyes. Yes, so, uh, you know, the promise of drones, uh, you know, existed and particularly small drones existed even at that time. But usually people were looking at drones which were uh, fixed-wing drones. So even DRDUs had a lot of programs and projects around fixed-wing drones where you could throw them with your hand and have them do a mission with a camera on board and then come back and land. Uh, be comfortably retrieved. So and a lot of how, 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 how does it fly then? Like, what is does it have a so, fan also to propel? Like does it have a propeller? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so if you are aware of uh, radio control flying, a lot of people do hobby flying, right? You can think of uh, this as a evolved version of hobby flying, where you are no longer uh, flying the aircraft. You are actually uh, merely, uh, you can say. You are merely giving it the direction to go from point A to B, doing certain launch events. But uh, in radio control flying, you are supposed to do the full manipulation of the system. Yeah. You're in, this scenario, huh, in this scenario, you are essentially doing nothing. You're just sort of telling it to go from point A to B and it will automatically figure a way out of going there. So the entire software and the hardware that does that real-time control of that aircraft acts as its brain uh, is is what an autopilot typically is. Okay. The goal would be at point B to capture some images or something and then and those images could be transferred from the... Yeah, so usually those images are live transmitted. So Okay, okay. okay. Got it. So you were... Supplying your autopilot boxes to DRDO, then what? So, essentially, uh, in 2008, again, you had uh, the terror attacks on Mumbai. And when those terror attacks were happening, we realized that, uh, you know, we essentially were not able to uh, help despite having the technology and when the naval helicopters were uh, trying to look at the third and fourth floor of the Taj Hotel, we felt that uh, we missed an opportunity to serve the nation and uh, instead of putting more people in the harm's way by obviously trying to do that, 
uh, a drone could have done a much better job by staying out of your shot and still be able to see and be not very visible. So that's when we decided that maybe the best use of our tech uh, is to uh, build it for our forces so that they can deploy them for such situations, particularly in the last mile where such large uh, assets cannot really help you. So that was the thought process. And, and, and that's how we decided that we've converted this into a product. In 2009, we launched India's first fully autonomous uh, pure VTOL micro UAV. Okay, so what is, just break it down, what is VTOL? VTOL is vertical takeoff and landing. And then you said micro, what? Micro UAE. Micro UAE. So micro uh, essentially is meant for a, you can say, backpackable UAE. So okay. something similar, something that and you want aerial very light vehicle. vehicle. Unmanned aerial vehicle. UAE okay. is, yeah, and crude aerial vehicle. Uh, just what was this product? What were the use cases for what all sensors did it have on board? What did you price it at? So it had a, a camera sensor on board that could, and, and it had two camera sensors. One could work in the day and the other could work in the night as well. And uh, because the drone is autonomously flying, even if you, you just have to give it location. You just have to ensure that the takeoff location is not covered with things overhead and is a reasonably clear space for you to account for the accuracy of the sensors. But as long as those things were taken care of, the system would uh, autonomously take off, uh, continuously being live video from that location and offer the ability to do dynamic control of the system. So if you want the system to move a little bit left, try go to another location. Uh, all of that was possible using you know, the system that we had built. Okay. Okay, got it. Okay, so this is the kind of stuff you see in uh, Hollywood movies where they show targets in Iraq and stuff like that. Ah, so those are that is happening uh, on much bigger systems. They are they are still drones, but they are much larger ones that need a runway to take off and land. What we build are drones that somebody can carry in a large backpack and deploy them at the last mile. You were selling this to defense organizations? Yes, yes. So uh, mainly we started by selling to our police forces and um, that subsequently uh, went on to be used for or uh, beyond that as well. Who was doing sales? Like, I mean, you, you sound like a bunch of technical people. Someone must have needed to learn how to do sales, right? Yeah, so uh, sales for us was something uh, that uh, initially one of our uh, one of our other uh, early teammates, Amardeep Singh, he used to do uh, marketing for us. He also was from IIT Bombay and he used to do the sales and marketing work for us. So in our case, the sales and marketing was primarily centered around the need for doing flight demonstrations of the system we had built. Because at that time, it was really good enough for people to just see something flying because that wasn't such a commonplace sight. So most of our, most of our sales was selling, just showing the system fly. 
and getting live video and being able to see the aerial perspective or as we call it at times the god's view of things so so we we used to have a lot of fun in the field showcasing the technology to our end users but uh, like police departments had the budget for like you didn't need to like really send in that traditional sense of uh, like perfect <laughs> to buy and all that. like essentially they were already looking for this you just had to show your product is technically sound so the fact that it is available was a massive curiosity for everybody once they saw it flying uh, they obviously really really liked what they saw and uh, therefore were willing to carve out the necessary budgets to buy it we also in the early days partnered with drdo to launch our netra drone it was the first flagship drone that we had launched uh, netra and our netra series is now in our fourth generation and we are using that for it's been used in many many cases to do counter insurgency counter terror or you know emergency response now they are also used for essentially mapping applications as well where our drones are being deployed for creating land records for end users so how did you like were you able to uh, break even once you started selling this to the police departments like what was it when you like so essentially what happened was that we started from a low uh, we started from a you can say high volume low margin low tech product which was the chargers business that we were doing from that to moving towards the uh, low volume but higher margin and uh, you know higher mix kind of a product so we were very conscious that uh, we will have to make money of our own because by then also one thing i had realized was that there was very it was very unlikely to get funding for hardware uh, projects particularly if you wanted to get value from the deal so we always were very clear that we have to build a product that the customer wants to buy can use effectively and we can make money from it so that we can build the next one or the next one or the next one after that not just build it for the customer but also invest in technology so that we can continuously improve uh, what we are building so that consciousness was there in us and therefore we were quite uh, you know appropriate in terms of how we price it it was commensurate to the you can say it was commensurate to what it would have taken to survive in those times right essentially right. what kind of adult revenue were you doing in those years like 11 or i think about crore or so or okay. maybe three crores okay. i'll have to go okay. back and check but yeah no, uh, just as a boy yeah. fact yeah i mean so uh, you know 2015 is when you got a reasonably good size 
seed funding rounds. How did that come about? So, you know, our story has been, and I say this very often these days, that, you know, as far as funding is concerned, we were like, in every event, we were like a tiger out of his cage in a zoo. Because uh, people come to the zoo to watch the tiger, but if he is out of his cage, nobody wants to go near him. So that's who we are and uh, very, very challenging to get funding for these kind of ideas. And problem was that, uh, you know, it was just the times, right? Those times were all about software, all about... Yeah, yeah, asset light. <laughs> Invest beyond an app, asset light. So nobody really understood in the venture world what it takes to build a hardware company. So that means it was... It was what it was and, uh, you know, even when you would get funding offers, they would not sound right. And uh, after having spent enough years in doing this, we knew that if we can't be valued right, then there is very little merit in sort of getting into that partnership. Right? It's only going to be win for one side and it's not going to be win-win for both of us. So uh, that way is we were very conscious. So we had to prove the business model every step of the way before we got funding. So uh, 2015, we got funding because we had uh, won the country's first uh, capital procurement, which uh, usually the Army, Navy, Air Force headquarters do uh, on the Air Force to give them mini UAV drones for some of their forces. So uh, that contract when we signed was sizable and therefore uh, because of that people felt that no, it seems like a business can be built here as well. And that's how interest came to us and because a lot of the capital was visibly going to go into execution of that contract itself, uh, we had the good fortune of being able to raise some capital in 2015. And that was all, you can say, quasi-pre-Series A kind of funding that means. How big was that contract? Capital from Air Force? I think cumulative value at that time was close to about between 5 to $7 million. Oh, okay. That was a massive dollar value of that time. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big contract for those times. Absolutely. It was the largest in that time, so... Yeah. Uh, so, so that was, um, you know, the journey there. And, and uh, who was doing fundraise? Like, that's also like doing sales in a way, you know, to do networking and get a chance to meet people and pitch and all that. Like, how, how did you manage that? So I used to do it mostly. Mm. And um, so what happened was that uh, after the initial days, right, it was uh, very, very difficult uh, to even attend events where we would go and pitch because um, any industry event that would happen was essentially an event where uh, mainly people were looking at IT products. So uh, we never really, uh, so even if we would go and uh, we have had events where uh, people will, people got up and said that, uh, you know, I have goosebumps listening to a two-minute story that I would have shared about what we were doing with this technology here. But uh, but we would never get funding. So 
So that used to be the case. So it was kind of hard to network also because the ecosystem was exhausted to that extent. Everyone knew who wanted to know, but there wasn't enough there in the private side of the house to be able to get. So we had to survive, but then we did find uh, after we went through a few milestones of proving that, you know, a larger business is possible here. That slowly and slowly things started to turn around and get a little bit more aligned in that direction. And uh, who was heading R&D and product? I guess the biggest, like maximum amount of money would be going into R&D product. Absolutely. I mean, I I still, it's a very famous uh, story in, in our, our company where we were on our last 20,000 rupees that we had for discretionary spend. And this is 15. Even even before that probably. But uh, we were and we have been through near death so many times that it's not even funny, right? That that was our reality for the most part of our entrepreneurial journey. So so we had to take a call between getting a, a new water cooler and uh, or getting four new motors to experiment a new type of aircraft or something like that. I don't think anybody, irrespective of who was managing finances, ever took the decision that we'll get the cooler but not the motors. So that was our uh, reality. So all money would essentially, anything we could spare would go to development and uh, that's the reason, and we were very clear that in the absence of being able to raise on the business or on the idea, the only thing that will increase the intrinsic value of the business is the technology it has. And its technology cannot suffer for the want of capital. And uh, then therefore you have to earn enough that you can invest behind technology. That's the reason why we had a reasonably bootstrapped business for the longest while. And as founders, you must have taken home very little money, if at all. Yeah, like there must have been months barely you would have been able to pay yourself. Also. More, mostly barely subsisting, yeah. So, so did 2015 change? Like, you know, you had big potential contract and you also got some amount of funding. No, so we, to be honest, we are very clear that uh, orders and funding are both... Uh, great events to you know celebrate but uh, they are not the goal of uh, what we are doing and uh, you know that recognition has always been there with us because we've seen times irrespective and the only thing that matters to us as uh, you know founders in most cases is that what we have delivered to the world is it adding value to the world or not and that is the only thing nobody can take away from us what the product has done for the society or for the customers who have used it is something nobody can take away. But everything else is, uh, uh, you know, extremely ephemeral and uh, momentary. You know, funding is great, but uh, it's just a means or it's a privilege to get funded, to have enough resources that you can chase behind your dreams a little bit faster. But they are by no means uh, events to, in my view, to consider yourself as having arrived because uh, you know these events come with a lot of responsibility as well including you know, getting a customer order is the same I mean 
unless you deliver and he uses or he or she uses the product and gets the benefit from the product your job is not done or you have not arrived the day the product is doing its job is the day you have arrived at least for that hard world you of things tell me that journey like 2015 or was like once you got that big contract and subsequent to that what happened so uh, we got the big contract we got a few follow on contracts as well and we were uh, cruising along really well actually uh, and in 2016 we signed our series a investment and in 2017 we closed it as well and yeah, there was uh, about net million yeah and uh, that was essentially the so you need uh, you used to need foreign investment approvals at that time so we were the first drone company to get institutional investment in the country and uh, we were backed uh, even then by infosys qualcom and celesta capital uh, celesta is a funds that has been investing and their founders have been investing in tech companies for a very long while and their own background is of building technology companies to very very high and large revenues uh, we had the good fortune of actually finally meeting people who understood what it takes to build a hardware business and that's the reason why they backed us and then because they backed us and we had a bunch of additional interest from others and that ended up creating a good cycle for us so that was uh, that was a good moment but at the same time the environment had become a little tricky because uh, the regulations uh, for drones that started to loom large and uh, the 2014 note had banned private use of drones and um, then subsequently the new rules were to come out and those rules in the draft that were coming out were a little bit more challenging than one would have like to have it and uh, then finally in 2018 when the rules came out they were uh, you know everyone knows that they were quite difficult to implement but not probably because they were difficult to te- implement technically but more because they did not envisage uh, any gap between a government system being ready and uh, the enforcement of the rule so what the government could have done they could have used it a little bit differently but their stance a hardline stance that everything will happen through the system ended up creating a little bit of a uh, logjam at that time and for a couple of years the industry was drifting along very 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 you can say on the margins for an outsider who's not from this industry what what was the problem with these rules why did it crash the growth of that industry so these rules essentially banned the use of drones by any civil user uh, without having a software piece that needed uh, permission from the central government to deploy so it's like you know needing etc permissions from the airport authority every time you fly now that mission for an industry like this if it has to come manually or if it has to come physically or if it has to come through an automated system the system has to be ready but there was no system 
and there was no system ready for that so uh, till the system is not ready you do something to keep the gaadi moving right i mean but that was not adopted as a measure and uh, we waited for go live very very fast in the end even after i think two years we were nowhere close to the finish line on that so that is where uh, you know things were a little tricky because what was promised as readiness could not have been achieved considering a government system and a government uh, this one it could not have been achieved so probably at that time that became a challenge but i mean now that's all in the past because come pandemic uh, you know everyone realized that uh, you know we'll be losing more lives by not using drones then we will lose by uh, using them so the fears were broken uh, suddenly what was good to have became must have drones did pretty much everything it looks like to me during the pandemic so from spraying the streets to you know, us deploying drones with megaphones on them or doing lockdown surveillance and all sorts of activities based on the you can say knowledge of that time and that all of us were carrying uh, we've done so many things which were in that direction right so essentially the pandemic and the events subsequent to that changed the color of the industry and uh, we are now on a cruising path actually exponential growth path in terms of the industry itself is concerned this restriction the new law which came it private demand for drones but your demand was largely government right police force air force see the way uh, some of the government demand works is that uh, they were at that time testing these systems so if they have inducted in a reasonable number initially then they want to assimilate operationalize then more demand will come in right so some of that was in that direction and things were happening there and that's the reason why you know whatever numbers happened even those happened because there was some demand there but in generally the growth or the exponential growth doesn't come purely from some of these kind of customers right i mean presently it is also because of the environment we are in but uh, in generally uh, you expect enterprise and private side to grow much faster than that's the reason why it was an important part of operationalizing drones uh, on a daily basis in our life so that did not happen for many years it was you know under restrictions rules that were kind of half they even if the rules were not half baked the preparation to implement them was half baked so that ended up creating a lot of okay okay help me understand the private demand for drones what kind of bodies or uh, what kind of customers buying drones what are they using it for so they are being used in mines for doing volumetric estimations haul road mapping all sorts of activities and mine cut fill estimates waste estimate whatever they are used in agriculture for spraying they are used for agriculture in precision agriculture where you can judge the health of a crop progressively and if a specific area is not perfect then you can do 
interventions in those specific areas improve the quality of uh, output as well as the maintain or increase the yield overall on that farm. So essentially agriculture is another large use plus power line inspections, inspection of uh, transmission towers, inspections of mobile towers, all sorts of uh, use cases. Presently, the government is using drones for creating land records. and You are essentially getting drones are taking high resolution images and then they are being converted into maps which are very, very accurately georeferenced and property cards are being created with the reference of the same. Okay. So, uh, what changed pandemic hit? You you said that uh, the, the norms... So, once the mindset changed, mindset changed that suddenly from what was banned was enabled through special exemptions. Then, uh, then you know, the... The locust swarms came in. People thought that uh, drones could be used for helping spray uh, insecticides for uh, locusts uh, to you know, prevent the spread. They used drones for that. Then the Swamitva scheme, which I was talking about, where the government of India is mapping all the 660,000 villages in the country and is planning to create uh, property cards and distribute them to villagers who will get ownership of their land for the first time. And uh, that is what is happening on that scheme. So that was launched by the Honorable Prime Minister. Then uh, we had the uh, Galvan incident, where the main reason why we got into that issue was because there was suddenly, uh, there was no information of what was happening at the border. And uh, because that information was not available, we ended up getting into a tricky situation. So uh, that triggered emergency procurement from the government side where they wanted to induct uh, technologies that would help them keep an eyes on the border or better manage those situations and those kind of escalations. Then the war happened between Armenia and Azerbaijan, wherein Azerbaijan was able to uh, completely outgun Armenia purely on the basis of what drones did in that environment. So you had a flurry of things that happened, which forced the government to not just open up private use for these kind of scenarios, but accelerated the need to have enabling regulations as well as the defense side of the house also realize that unless they invest behind this technology, there is a fear that the next country that does not have drone power could be the next Germany as well. So, in that broad sense, the entire outlook towards the industry changed in a short span of uh, nine months. And uh, we had a new set of rules that came out in 2021. And uh, since then, we have opened up our airspace in a big way to allow this technology to flourish in our countries as well. In fact, now it is a stated mandate of India to want to become the drone hub of the world. Oh. Okay. So, what are these new rules which came out in 21? Now, you no longer need approval for every flight? So, as long as you are operating a type certified drone in a green zone, which is 85 to 90% of the country, up to 400 feet, you don't need anyone's permission. 
So it has become quite equivalent to flying or or taking a car out on the road. You need a street legal car, you need a license plate, and you need a driving license. For drones, you need a type certified drone with a pilot certificate and a unique identification number, which is called UIN. And you are free to fly the drone up to 400 feet in green zones in the country. And if the zone, anything above 400 feet, unless it is declared as a red zone, is a yellow zone. And if something is declared as a red zone, then you need central government's permission to operate in those areas. And these are typically uh, areas around airports or uh, certain critical installations and stuff like that. How did your customer base evolve? Like you were mostly doing government sales and once COVID hit, how did your customer base evolve? How did your uh, sales cycle and sales organization evolve? So, the pandemic did not really change the target customer segment. Per se. It only sort of accelerated some uses and you know, uh, certain other uses were getting explored faster than the ones you would have thought will get explored earlier. So, with Swamitwa, mapping became a rage and suddenly mapping has become a real thing. Now, nobody wants to look at mapping in the conventional sense, in the sense that uh, the, the whole age-old method of doing mapping with uh, total stations and uh, only total stations and those kind of things is done for. Now people are looking at mapping using drones primarily as far as land survey mapping is concerned. Similarly, asset inspections uh, is becoming real security and use of drones for security situations has become real. So, Broadly, it is just reinforced and some other use cases have come to the fore, like spraying has come to the fore in a big way. Uh, spraying using drones is something that a lot of people are looking to explore. I would say that customer base hasn't changed. It's just that uh, you know, deployment across the entire base is actually now accelerated in the last... Mapping customer is still the government only, right? I guess for asset inspection for spraying, these would be private customers. Well, even mapping, there are private needs for mapping as well, for project planning, project progress monitoring, many, many, even on the private side of now. Like, like a, say, a map by India, be using your drones. Yes. Okay. Just, okay. And, uh, as an organization, you know, like what kind of revenues were you doing? I guess you also raised more funding after that, right? Yes, we did. Uh, so, uh, post the, uh, so the, when the pandemic started, things were a little touch and go. I mean, it was probably the lowest point for the industry in many years because uh, regulations were really not letting anything flourish. And then pandemic happened, things started opening up and things started looking well, you know, ups, on the upswing as well. And then we had some programs come in. Uh, some of our drones, uh, the first drone company in India to get their drones certified or qualified for the Swamitwa use. 
by the Survey of India. So our drones started getting deployed for the Swamitva scheme. And uh, that progressively uh, started to build the order book. And we've now, over the last few years, two years, like two last two fiscals, not including the current one, grown like 10 x So that's been a good jump in terms of how things happen. 10x is amazing. I guess you also raised about uh, 17, 18 million dollars in the last two years. Yes, yes. So what we are, so basically uh, to fuel, so last we had raised in 2017 and uh, we were always frugal about how we spend and where we spend and that ends up helping us sustain this challenging period, but the moment things got back on track, uh, we got, you know, quite a good flurry of orders until the emergency procurement from the government of India, also for the Shamitwa scheme and stuff. So that ended up creating a good momentum where we were able to raise funds from uh, our existing investors as well as we had uh, Florentry, Exim Bank, and so all existing investors join into our Series B round. Okay. okay, almost 20 million, I guess, your Series B. Yeah, yeah, on, on those. And what's your current data? Like this year, what are you expecting? Those that I can't disclose, but uh, that, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be healthier. Like, have you crossed 10 million? Era? Yeah, yeah, long back. Oh, oh, you're now touching or going towards 50 million kind of a target, I'm guessing that. Not, uh, not necessarily yet, but yes, we, can, we are on our way. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, I want to understand uh, drones versus satellites. Because a lot of uh, these use cases, uh, satellites are also being used for it. What is the difference? Like, say, mapping, uh, like, say, uh, inspecting crops. Uh, so I do believe that, that there are these satellite images uh, on which machine learning algorithms can be used to do a lot of these similar use cases. So what is, help me understand where drone fits in, satellite fits in. The differences between the two drones are a very different. You can say, you know, technology as compared to satellites, because drones, particularly of the class that we make, can be numerous in numbers, trying to map the same uh, patch of land. Right, so imagine like how many satellites can you have up in the air versus how many drones can you have deployed to map that same patch of land. Of course, it is also needless to say that the resolution at which you can map using a drone and the fidelity that you get in terms of data is almost 10x better than what satellites can do, even at the best resolution today. So you'll get 10x better data quality, you will get um, far more, you can say, far, far better availability of data from in that one sense, because uh, you are 
So, if you want real-time data, uh, you cannot have one large sensor map the entire Earth. Right? So, it's the same problem with uh, looking at very, very large drones, right? Ultimately, if you want to resolve the same object on ground, then the drone is going to look at the same patch of land and is going to deliver footage for that that little patch of the ground only. And the context is that that has to be done a thousand kilometers away from the takeoff location, then it is all good. Then you need a larger system that can go a thousand kilometers away and then give you data of that one spot with that one small spot, right? Or even for a satellite, it's pretty much similar. If you want real-time intelligence. So one, there is no substitute for real-time intelligence, but to have a device there, you can't have one satellite look at one batch and then manage an entire battlefield or a battlefront or any other real-time data that's spread over a wide set of So essentially, a lot of differences from that point of view. And then even that larger drone, if you don't have to go 1,000 kilometers and you go see something 10 kilometers away, then that 1,000 kilometer drone is an overkill for that patch. You would rather deploy a small drone that can go 10 kilometers and get the job. It's almost like, you know, you always can bring dal from a lady. But, uh, you know, if you want to feed a horse, maybe. In fact, or an elephant, but maybe for an elephant you need a bucket, but for a human you need a table stool, right? So it's something very similar uh, in that one sense that um, satellites are great and uh, they have very specific tasks which they can do really well, which is to cover very large areas, but the temporary feedback and availability of that data cannot be, or it cannot be as heavy a number as what you can get using a drone. Sometimes clouds can obstruct the view of satellites, particularly if they are doing regular color imagery and stuff like that. Whereas drones operate, most of the small drones operate below cloud cover, so you can get that much better data in those times. Okay, okay. So, uh, what is the cutting edge in drone technology? Like, For people who are not from this space, understand what all can a drone do today? What all features it have? I mean, you know, for example, everyone knows what is cutting edge mobile phone, like has a great cap, full day battery life or whatever. So what is like cutting edge drone technology like? So this will depend on who you speak to. For example, for IdeaForge, cutting edge implies performance, reliability, and autonomy. As much as the product can deliver better performance, can deliver more reliable operations, which implies can sustain heavy duty cycles of operations and can be autonomous, which implies that it can help deploy the least expensive resource and operations. And probably the more needy one for a job as well, then you are doing justice to your customers by giving him the lowest possible cost of ownership for what he's buying. So, uh, 
we essentially look at these three parameters as our measure of what's cutting edge. And uh, we, we do believe that we have leadership in some of our product categories in, in that area group. Okay. Okay. So, what do you mean when you say deploy lowest cost asset? Your system is essentially controlling a cluster of drones. What to decide which drone should be deployed for which objective? Is it like that? No, no. So, so what I mean by that is the following. Right? So, for example, if you want to map a very large area, then what do you need? You need a drone that can map as much as possible a chunk of that area every slide while retaining the need for accuracy and everything. Two, it should be able to sustain repeat use because if it can only cover X amount of uh, uh, you know, area uh, in, in a given time or in a given flight, then you should be able to fly it many times because you can't expect these systems to remain airborne all the time. right? They are on systems that have to take off from the roadside, be deployed to map an area which is completely unstructured and therefore and has to be carried on a bike or on foot or however, right? So they have to be lightweight as well. So it will obviously have limited time in the air, but how much more time can you pack for every pound that goes up in the air is essentially performance, right? So you've delivered that performance plus you deliver the ability for the drone to do repeat of this performance or remain safe in tough environments or sometimes even be operable in tough environments, you can ensure that the user gets more life out of their system. So you've given him or her more coverage per flight and then you give him more number you have more number of flights also. So now he has the lowest possible mix of or cost per flight as far as amortization of his hardware is concerned, right? Despite sometimes having a higher upfront cost of ownership. So that is a very important factor. So his amortization on the hardware is uh, the lowest. And then if it is in a way automatic or if it is autonomous, you don't need a very, very smart person to operate. You need a like medium skilled person to operate it. So you don't have to go for the most expensive resource in the market to deploy, but you need to go after the most sustainable resource to deploy. And therefore, as a combination of the cost of ownership, you end up creating the lowest cost of ownership for the customer, despite being more expensive upfront. And that's desirable because at scale, the cost of ownership is what matters. Upfront cost doesn't do anything if you have to replace the system many times by the time the job gets done or you have to maintain a large number of extra batteries or you have to maintain a lot of visual oversight onto the system and stuff like that. So essentially, these factors are what we believe are important and that's what defines cutting edge for us as far as this tech is concerned presently. And of course, I mean, the data that you get from the system has to be of 
adequate quality that allows for the inference the user wants to make from it. So that is a given. That has to happen. Otherwise, it's of no use. Okay. Okay. So <clears throat> help me understand the software element. One part of your software is inside the drone, which is help meet its objective, whatever parameters are set, like to visit a patch of land, get images and cover it and come back. What else is there in the software? So there is the communication piece there wherein we uh, make sure that the protocol that we use allows us to communicate with the drone while the drone giving you high quality imagery back in real time at a large enough distance that the user feels more freedom in his operation right so that is one part communication the other part is the camera controls the camera the stabilization that goes onto the system or the camera itself plus the control software that does both the job of helping you manage to drone in its flight, give it the necessary instructions for our mission. At the same time, it also has sometimes features that allow it to do image processing on the data received in the real time, display it to the end user and stuff like that. I was reading recently that Russia is using Iranian drones in the Ukraine war. Uh, yeah. uh, so how is it uh, like an advanced tree power like Russia is from Iran, I was a little curious about that. If you're, if that is something which you would like to come. So, what happens in this technology? It's a very democratized technology in that one sense, right? The drones, building a drone, is not really, you know, an exclusive science anymore, right? Because open source softwares are available, autopilots are available, control softwares are available. And uh, there is enough that you can do with those to be able to at least rig up something well and progressively build in the right direction for it as well. However, because and also because the certification standards that one needs to comply for drones are in a way undefined because they are defined for manned aircrafts or defined for consumer products, but not defined for something intermediate like what these guys are like. So, essentially, there is, uh, it's not very difficult to build a drone in terms of uh, the initial stages. And you can uh, build quite reasonably sized systems in that direction. However, if you were to ask the question of, is that the best in the world, I'm quite certain the answer would come out to be not necessarily. But uh, is, is best in the world essential for a specific job? Maybe in specific times it is not. In other times when you are not in such an emergency, it might be and therefore you would not rely on whatever is available. So, what is the future for the drone industry and you know where does idea for in that you know how big is this market likely to get like uh, uh, do you have some stats how big the market is likely what is it estimated to reach so last year when the government 
announced the data for the PLI scheme, they mentioned that they received applications that added up to about 320 odd crores, right? So that was including drone OEMs and drone component manufacturers. So that was the size of the industry, which, uh, you know, there are reports on the VLI scheme itself that state about its potential to potential for growth in the subsequent years. So it is definitely uh, slated to grow uh, at a very fast click in the short term. And it is expected to grow and continue to grow all the way till 2030. For example, our own vision of being the drone of the world, if that has to mean something, then it is going to be a very, very large opportunity for the local industry as well. C20 cannot, so this would be the total cost of production for drones, uh, drone by drone companies with total subsidy. Total revenue of the drone companies that were seeking the subsidy, the PLI okay. subsidy. Okay. So the total market might be say three or four times of this number, including the non-subsidy business. Not necessarily because the threshold for applying for subsidy was only two crores. So it might not be as large because the threshold was fairly low in this in this particular. Okay. So, are you global? Do you supply to uh, outside India? Are you global? Uh, are you going global? What is your plan? Yes. 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 So, just uh, in September this year, we uh, took for the first time our systems to the US market. And uh, we're already delivering to uh, some international markets like Oman and some, somewhere in Africa, even to our neighbors, some of our neighbors. Okay. What percentage of your drone is indigenously made? Like, you must be importing some parts, some parts must be made in India. Yeah, so, as far as our drones are concerned, we are able to We've been able to indigenize from a value perspective uh, more than 70% uh, of our system is uh, indigenous. It, it, could be, it could be higher than that as well in terms of indigenization. So, no, I mean, we've done pretty much. Uh, we've pretty much built this technology from scratch. And in a way, if you remember the movie Three Idiots and our early prototype in the movie, we sort of pioneered this space. Oh, that was your drone in Three Idiots? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. Amazing. So, yeah, so, you know, and, and this was a time where nothing open source was available. So, essentially, we built the entire tech stack ourselves. That's the reason why we have one of the most vertically integrated shop in this domain. Amazing. Okay. And uh, what's your headcount now? How big are you as an organization? So we are about uh, 250 odd people on drone and another 200 odd people on contract 
side of the house for uh, essentially production. So directly employing close to 450 to 500 people. So you, you produce uh, in-house or you do third-party manufacturing? We do a lot of third-party component manufacturing as well as, uh, you know, subsystem assembly. But we do the system integration ourselves and we do the testing and delivery to the end customer at this point. Okay, amazing. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium.in. That's ad at t-h-e-p-o-d-i-u-m dot in.